Hi, this is Francois Condolon, Global Director of BCG Henderson Institute, BCG Think Tank, and you're listening to Experiencing Data with Brian T. O'Neill. You're now Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill. Today, I've got one of the leading managing partners from Boston Consulting Group, Francois Condolone. You run the Henderson Institute. Tell us what this is and what it has to do with AI. Actually, BCG Henderson Institute works on many fronts and so on, but I'm focusing my own research on artificial intelligence and its impact on corporations and society. As I believe that as we're entering this uh, new industrial revolution, this new era, it's probably one, if not the most important topic that we uh, need to deal with. Yes, I agree with that. And just for listener context, why are we talking today? I saw Francois a presentation he had given against a report, and it's actually a multi-year study they've been doing with MIT Sloan about AI in the enterprise. And the initial article that caught my eye was about last year's findings about human machine interaction and essentially the companies that are leading in this area and seeing the best value from ai what are they doing that's unique and some of the patterns that you guys saw in that research so that was the initial impetus when i reached out to francois and then he told me we have a new report coming out and the new one is about the cultural impacts on organizations around artificial intelligence so we're going to kind of cover both of these today and i wanted to first give the mic to you though Tell me a little bit about the methodology behind these reports, and then I'll jump in with specific questions, but I wanted to give you kind of first chance to set the stage about this whole study. This study, yes, as you said, every year we have a report that we co-author with uh, MIT Sloan. And I think it's a very interesting approach. Every year with Sloan Management Review, we uh, survey around 3,000 executives across the world, across industries, and uh, we try to better understand the impact of AI on the enterprise, all what happens. We have, uh, let's say, long-term time series, but we are as well always trying to find an angle. And last year's report was really about, okay, what happens? Many companies invest in AI, but we can see that only 11% of them can find that they have significant financial impact based on their AI investments. So you have about 55% companies having some financial impact, but only 11% with strong financial impact. And we try to understand why these companies were uh, actually getting it. So one of the findings last year, I'm going to try to briefly summarize this, and then I want you to go ahead and obviously either correct me or add the color to it, was talking a lot about how companies are learning that in order for this to be successful, AI and what I think is primarily machine learning initiatives They need to be designed in the last mile with the customers and users that are using them for humans to learn from the machines, for machines to learn from the humans. Effectively, we have to design for this interactive counterpart mentality, an assistive aid mentality, as opposed to uh, we're trying to fully automate or replace. And and there's a time and a place certain kinds of models, et cetera, are appropriate for, for that type of work. 
But that was the thing that caught my eye was that these companies that are very problem and need focused and had designed these solutions around this human machine interaction. So could you tell us a little bit more about this? If you'd like to share some specific examples that you heard about in your study that I'm curious to hear. Yeah. So I I think that what was interesting is that we tried to understand what would make companies successful in uh, using AI. And what we found is that the likelihood for you to be successful if you have, let's say, already hired data scientists, you have good, uh, let's say, uh, infrastructure, you have, uh, let's say, AI strategy, actually, you have less than, uh, you're around 20% likely to get significant financial impact. If you are going to the next level, let's say, using both being balanced between production and consumption, if you try to use AI not only for uh, reducing costs, optimizing costs, but as well to try to go into and get additional revenues, so personalization or other things, so that's much better, but you are at around 40%. What makes the real difference is when you have what we call organizational learning, which means that at the same time you learn from AI as an individual, as a human, and AI will learn from you. And this is relatively easy to understand because as we're in a world which is always more uncertain, the rate of learning, the ability for an organization to learn is one of the most important competitive advantage. And if you do that, you are above 75% likely to get significant financial impact. And But I would say that the financial impact is almost a byproduct What is important is this notion of mutual learning, this ability to learn and therefore to be more agile in this uncertain world. Yeah. So you talk about learning and learning, particularly if we're talking about the point at which humans and our machine learning and effectively we're talking about software applications, some type of interface between human and the software is is occurring. That assumes that we have some level of trust and some level of adoption, because if people aren't even willing to pay attention, not even to open up the application or look at the spreadsheet that has the new price forecasting in it or or the next best action report or whatever the heck it is, you've already lost the game. And I find that with my audience, and this could be, maybe this is selection bias based on the clients that I work with, adoption is still a challenge. So Building the technology is not the challenge for a lot of the the data science and analytics teams that I work with who are largely responsible for these initiatives. It's getting buy-in and trust from the users that this new way is a better way. This is good for you. Eat your vegetables, please. That's not always happening. I'm curious, did your study learn something about this, about breaking the trust barrier and how we figure out how do we make this stuff trustworthy, usable, useful, and valuable to the people it's for. First of all, I think that you're perfectly right. What we used to say at BCG is that we have the 10, 20, 70 rule. So what does it mean? It means that it's the effort we believe that is required if we want to actually implement AI and be successful. And 10% is around the, the algo. Of course, it's important, but and you can get better algos and it's critical, right. but it's not that difficult. Right. 20% is what around the infrastructure with data and so on. What is really critical is about change management. And this is a yeah. 70%. Yeah. And to give you some examples on how to create trust, of course, you need to have 
humans working with you and be involved when you draft stuff. But what we found, it, it was more in the, in the second report, is that if you deploy AI and for companies that are able to achieve a better level of decision, better quality of decision, so when there is an additional effectiveness linked to AI, then we have people will feel more comfortable, will feel augmented, not replaced, and then they will trust AI. And you will, as they trust, they are ready to have additional use cases implemented, and therefore you are entering into a virtuous cycle. And I give you one example with Panoricar, the uh, the global in French. Global uh, wine and yeah, spirit. Yeah, was that on purpose? I noticed the yeah, French liqueur course, example in there, Francois. <laughs> yes, you know, you know, uh, this is my own bias. They are actually uh, they developed a, a, a great product, a great algo, to support their sales salespeople to help them identify which customer they should visit. And they were a little bit considering there would be some backlash, and it was the other way around. Because as I said, these people felt augmented and not replaced. And yeah. by doing that, none of them, even the veteran, they don't want to stop and go back and live without AI anymore. So yeah. I think this is a very important element. And in my opinion, especially with narrow AI, what we need as a company to optimize is the system human plus AI. I believe that if you are trying just to optimize, let's say, AI with what, all what it can do, then you will be back to the modern times of Charlie Chaplin. But if you try to optimize human plus AI, if you build on the respective capabilities of each of them, humans are much better at dealing with ambiguity and so on. AI are dealing with large amount of data. If you are able to combine both, mm -hmm. then you are in a situation to be really to create a source of competitive advantage. Yeah, you actually segue right into this question because I, I literally pulled out uh, Pierre-Yves Kaluk, I think, is the chief digital officer of Pernod Ricard, if I recall correctly. And I wanted to ask you if this example, if I recall reading this correctly, effectively, they engaged the salespeople in the process of designing this tool, which was to help them decide who should I call next, which stores are more likely to purchase a product or whatever it may be. It's to reduce the effort of them wasting time calling people or contacting people who don't want to buy something right now. Is this process of involving the users in the design of the solution, was this a repeating trend that you heard from these companies? Yes, I think that you need to use when you develop these algos, you need to be in a to work in an agile mode. And so to have your own MVV. And and you need these people to come back to you because if you add their judgment to your training, uh, let's yeah. say training set and so on, to come back to you and both on the way that you will use it and developing their judgment, including their judgment, that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And I give you one more example, another French company, Rexel, and they've been able to, uh, to do that. They were trying to develop, let's say, an algo that was giving the next best action to their sales force. And they have a very complex offer, more than 1 million SKUs. So it's very difficult for everyone to know it. And they were looking at that and understanding that the young generation was using it while the veterans were a little bit more reluctant but at the end they were able to embark the veterans because the veterans were saying okay 
that's great that we have this tool because thanks to it, the young generation doesn't ask us so many questions. And it was funny to see that the veterans were more willing to support and train the algo than to train their, their colleagues. But at the end, it was great and it became a training opportunity for the, uh, the newcomers. So it's really something that, uh, that we can see because we should never forget that the worst day of Nei Algo is day one. So uh, we need, of course, to make sure that we embark in this process, not saying, okay, this is just the perfect solution at the moment, but with your support collectively, we'll learn more with each other. And one more example, maybe on, on this notion of mutual learning. I, I was the other day with the head of a trading floor in a bank. And the guy was telling me, you know, and it was not a French bank, you know, <laughs> it's great to see how my traders are learning from AI and AI learning from the traders. Because of course, at first AI was learning from the traders because they put some sensors to see which data traders were looking at to make their decisions and so on and to avoid noise. Then, so the AI was learning from the traders. Then AI was learning on his own, gathering millions of decisions and so on. But then traders were learning from data a little bit like humans or Go players were learning from AlphaGo, which is that the AI algo was opening new paths new ideas, new recommendations. And based on that, it was opening the mind of the traders. And then they were taking decisions in a new way. And you were back to the cycle, uh, let's say the virtual cycle, where then AI was learning from them, blah, blah, blah. So I think it's very important for everyone to understand what's happening there. This notion of mutual learning. Yeah, I've heard of this happening in other domains, including medicine as well, you know, where a machine learning model finds a connection between two disparate things that seem highly correlated to some outcome or prediction there. And it might be something that no one's actually studied, like, oh, brushing my teeth is related to my ankle swelling. And it's like, why is this correlation here? And there was actually an example on this show. It wasn't that I forget what the, the specific thing was. But when they went out and to the medical community to talk about what the model had found, they found out that there were actually some researchers working on this, not from a machine learning standpoint, but this hypothetical connection there. And now they had some data to actually say machines are finding this and human researchers are finding this. So I think that point on idea generation as something that could be a positive outcome from this is a really interesting concept. So one thing I'll say as I was reading the current report, and maybe this is not survivorship bias, it it's skewed rather rosy a little bit in terms of some of the stuff I've heard compared to the overall climate that I hear from a lot of people that I talk to. And I wanted to uh, pick on a particular, not pick on an example, but ask you about the CBS example. So I think it's Radha Subramaniam. This leader asked their team to take 50 years of KPIs and validate that the KPIs that executive leadership was using to measure success or measure forward momentum, they asked the data team, are we actually tracking the right measurements here? And I found that to be a very forward looking perspective, which is my job is to captain the ship, but I'm not sure if I'm looking at the right dials or not. It takes a very forward looking leader to push that problem down to the people below them and say, 
could you figure this out for me? I don't hear that a lot. I think that's the kind of work data teams would love to do because that's it's rewarding work, it's strategic work, it's meaningful work. Is that an exception or are you hearing more of this kind of like turn the keys over? <laughs> I would say to be frank that it's more an exception. I think it means that you have a confident leader and someone who is ready to say, okay, we're thinking that AI is supporting him, not is not a danger of making him obsolete. And I give you an alternative, let's say an opposite element. When we're working for a telco and using a very good, let's say, approach that we have with very good algos that help you have the next best action, reduce churn, increase, um, let's say, uh, upsell, cross-sell, the traditional stuff. And with this, you are actually, telcos are usually working with campaigns. Okay, they push it. But with this algo, basically, you can offer, you can personalize the offer. So you, you are in a continuous campaign. You offer the, you propose the right offer at the right time to any customer. And we had fantastic pilots. And the guy, this, the chief marketing officer told me, yes, but uh, you know, with this, I, I don't want to implement it because I know how to run a campaign, but then if I do that with it, what will I do? I'm becoming obsolete. And it is true that you have a very different way of then of organizing your, your business because everything is done by the algo, but the role for marketers is to become very creative, to have new ideas, to check new things, to train, to be in a continuous training, to create a new training set that will continuously improve your algos and test new things and so on. And the guy was feeling that he was obsolete. And I, I believe this is one of the uh, the key issues or the key topics I'm trying to work on at the moment. And it's not a, an easy one, which is what I call the AI driving license for CXOs. Because CXOs are now in positions, but they don't know about AI. They don't understand what the full potential of AI can be. And they don't understand and they feel that they are obsolete. So they don't know how to deal with these elements. And I call that an AI driving license because it's a little bit like what you do when you are your driving license, you can drive a car, but you don't know what happens in the engine, or at least I don't know. So, and I think this is an, let's say an analogy I try to use or a, or a metaphor, because this is probably the most important element for CXOs, how despite all limitations to understand enough about AI to on one hand, build an AI-driven or an AI-powered company, make sure that I understand the changes that I have with AI, let's say, for instance, because of the, the risk mapping. We all know all about responsible AI, reputational risk, and so on. How to design my organization to make sure that I have human plus AI working together and how, to what extent does it change my, uh, my work? And then to make sure that uh, you are maybe augmented yourself as a guy, the leader from CBS, to make sure that they are augmented and they leverage AI to take better decisions. Yeah, yeah. Well, props to her, uh, Radha. If you're listening to the show, I think it's awesome, and maybe, maybe I'll I'll reach out to her and, and have a conversation because I think that's a very very forward looking and confident leader to to do something like that. In terms of the AI knowledge of leadership, one thing that I've and I picture this as a tennis ball going back and forth or just a basic rally. It's 
we would like a machine learning model to make better pricing. And you get this, the, the data team or the data science team often receives a somewhat vague request. And so they try to ask some questions about it and it basically becomes, well, what do you want? We can probably build that, but I don't know what you want. Well, what can the AI, what can you guys do? It's kind of like, I need a menu so I can order something. Well, I don't know what you really, what do you like to eat? And it's like, they don't know what's possible. And the data team wants the problem handed to them neatly so that they can work on the solution. And so the issue there that I see is whose job is it to figure out the problem space there? Is this a CXO leadership lack of knowledge about how, and it's not that they need to become experts in AI or they're going to become data scientists, but the capabilities there to even know how do I ask a good data science question to my data team such that they can focus on the implementation and the creation and not so much on figuring out what is it that we need? What's our strategy? There's a gap here. And I'm, I'm curious if you're seeing this and it feels like this tennis ball going back and forth, like, tell me what you want. Well, tell me what you guys can do. Well, I don't know what your problem is. Well, let me know what's possible. It's just like back and forth. Where are they supposed to meet? Like who, who owns the problem definition? <laughs> I would say this is largely the reason why at BCG and uh, or AI Arm, uh, BCG Gamma, this is one of the reasons why we are actually developing extremely well. Because this is exactly what you said, is this notion of integration and ability to have people who are at the same time able to deal, I would not say people, to have teams that are at the same time able to deal with business issues and with tech issues. And this is where the notion of being to have an agile team with both characteristics becomes critical. I don't think that you can do it otherwise because you don't understand each other and you won't. But it's true that this is one of the reasons why I believe it's important for data scientists to try to put themselves in the shoes of the business people. Yeah. to try to reach a certain level of business understanding of their industry. They won't have to be an expert, but to yeah. have a kind of an overlap, to be able to have a dialogue between yeah. CXOs or let's say business leaders on one hand and technical teams is absolutely critical. Yeah, I, I fully agree. support that. Yes, I fully agree with that. One thing I wanted to ask you in terms of, and I, I don't know if your study actually uh, looked at this or, or got any uh, insights uh, from this, but I'm curious, did you see any correlation between the types of teams working on the solutions and the level of, of impact either culturally or financially there? And I'm specifically asking about, say, the IT slash data team, chief data office, something like that versus the digital side, if the enterprise has a digital division, was there any correlation between who's kind of running these efforts to deploy AI in the enterprise or companies that had a digital department tended to show better results or whether they formally did or not? Any correlations here? I'm just curious how the digital arm and the data organization, if there is one, are playing together and, and impacting these results. I think that what is important is to make sure so first of all, I believe that today the notion of digital teams without AI is something I don't fully understand because yeah. I think that it's now really uh, every, this is why when I use AI, it includes all digital stuff because yeah. you have always algos that can help improve and so on. So 
AI, you can tell me, yes, but AI is a tiny part of digital, or you can say basically you have an AI layer all around. So, but I think that, and I, I'm not sure I will answer your question specifically, but I'm trying to, what, what we try to do is to make sure that, let's say, AI is able, let's say, or AI teams are really at the core of the business. So I, I think that you need, the, the real element is a dialogue between the AI team and the business teams and to try to have these AI teams because they understand what AI is about and what can be done as well. They try to give a culture on AI to AI unskilled. So there is a need to upskill people and and what i've seen in uh, in several companies was the fact that you had let's say the digital teams that were that using let's say big data that were using uh, data warehouses not data lakes and so on closer to the business because of what had happened over time and then relying on an ai team that was more advanced and so on and and i think that the transition and making sure that ai becomes a core of your operating process and your operating model becomes very important. I've seen that, I think that very often companies ask themselves, how could AI help me optimize my process? I believe that they should now move, or at least the most advanced are now moving to how should I make sure that I redesign my process to get the full potential of AI, to bring AI at the core of my operating model. And of course, you cannot move to the second path without having done some use cases, some uh, brought some use cases at scale and so on. But this is a movement we see. And, and I have the feeling that we are at a moment when the difference, the gaps between the company that are embracing AI versus the ones that are just playing with it or the ones that are saying, okay, it's not for me, is really expanding. We are maybe at the moment when the S-curve is uh, really um, yeah. developing. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about digital not including AI as part of its its fabric or its fiber, its being. I, I think that's an interesting perspective. This is just a comment. I feel like I've noticed that a lot of the, particularly in, in very specialized domain areas, uh, data teams see themselves as very distinct from a digital arm. Like we're not, we're not software, we're not digital. We're like this hyper-specialized area and kind of like, that's someone else's responsibility. And sometimes it's like, there is no one else out there. So if you don't figure out how to help the business with this work, it probably will die. Op and I don't use the word operationalizing machine learning models because it sounds like something you do after you make something instead of designing it in from the start to be properly operationalized. But someone has to own that or the initiative will die. You can't design without the end users in mind and how they're going to bring this into their decision making and, and usage. So I'm curious that's an identification, the self-identification of the teams, like someone else's job, not my job, just kind of a reflection there, I guess, because I think digital teams tend to see themselves as very horizontal and spread across the business. <laughs> I, I think and maybe uh, the people listening to us won't be happy with what I will say, but I've seen maybe many data scientists that were more interested and attracted by the complexity, the beauty of the problem yes. they were solving yeah. instead yeah. of saying, okay, how can it be useful to my company? Yes. And I'm not blaming them for that. I'm just sure. saying that if this is what they do and maybe they need 
to have in their company a chunk of their time dedicated to that. But at the same time, they need for a significant part of it to make sure that they are creating impact for their company. I'm 100% with you. I mean, I think that's that's largely the, the point of my show and what I'm trying to focus on is to talk to the people who do want to go beyond the technical work because I call it building technically right, effectively wrong solutions. Nobody needs that. And at some point, not only is it not good for your career, but you might find it more rewarding to work on things that actually matter, that get used, that go into the world, that produce value. There's actually, it's more personally gratifying, not just for the yeah, business, and not but just for because you will have great <laughs> impact and so on, but because you will yeah. learn from others. Exactly. And, and you will become yeah. even stronger in what you do. Yes. And, and I've seen many companies, and I'm referring here to uh, a telco again, and sorry, because I, I work a lot with telcos. And I don't apologize for that. It's just because uh, many <laughs> just examples the ones will are, be right? telcos. <laughs> Not only French companies. <laughs> this one is an Indian telco. And yeah. really, they were becoming, because of what the great opportunities they were proposing to their people in saying, okay, when you redesign the network or network using AI, basically, you can not only optimize cost, maximize revenue, but you will have a societal impact as well. They were becoming the best alternative for data scientists who wanted to stay in India, or I have some other examples in Southeast Asia, and they were positioned, and in China as well, for the ones who wanted to stay there, they were really the best option to continue to develop data science and to, to work there. Yeah, yeah. I think when there's plenty of work available, you have your pick and things like mission and value and and things that go beyond getting a paycheck and all of that start to become more relevant. And I, I'm hearing the same thing where people do want to have an impact that goes beyond just getting the model 78% accurate. And that's the end all be all of my work. That's not what I'm I'm, I'm def- I am seeing a change uh, there too as well, which I think is really good. Earlier, we're talking about this kind of problem space, owning the problem here. And there was an anecdote that I remembered in last year's report. I don't remember the name. I think it was a chief data officer of a mining company in Africa. And he talked about, we don't have AI teams. We have problem solving teams. And I love that. And this is very much a product and design type of mindset where ownership of the problem is pushed down to a team. And it's like, we own retention or we own whatever it may. I don't even know what the context was, but I love that. I was curious if you have any uh, insights on that story, if you can expand on that a little bit. This idea of owning the problem, whether or not it needs AI, or maybe there's a, a regression model or a traditional a dashboard or whatever. Like, we don't know what tools needed yet, but we're owning this problem and we will help you solve it. Yes. I love that. You know, I've been in BCG for a while, it's 30 years. Yeah. When I started, uh, we didn't have laptop. Yeah. So, and uh, we were, so, but what I can see, the fact that the problems are always the same. So we didn't, uh, at the beginning, we were using, or uh, let's say calculator, then we had Excel spreadsheet, then we had yeah. SQL, and then, and now we, we use AI. And that's great. But at the end, the problems we're facing are always the same yeah. in the business. So AI is a way to solve problems. Mm-hmm. not an objective in itself. So this is right. why when I say, I, I used to say we are an AI enabled or an AI powered company, mm-hmm. but this is not, it shows a capability. Right. It shows a way of thinking and the ability to deal with the foundational capabilities of AI. Yes. It's not something else. And this is why for the data scientists that will open, will be open to better understand business, they will learn a lot and it will be very uh, enlightening 
to be able to solve these issues and to solve these problems. Yeah, I think the marketing gloss of saying we're an AI powered telco, I think there's a lot of eye rolling that happens within the professional data science community. It's just like you want to say that, but then like when it comes to down to the wire, you're not ready to accept some of this stuff. And I think someone that's able to close the gap between a stakeholder saying we want to use AI for pricing. We want to use AI to optimize our network. We want to use AI to improve our supply chain. It's the person that steps in and helps figure out what does that mean here? Like, what are we actually trying to do? And then maybe the recipe is a machine learning model or maybe it's this other thing. But it's it's helping unpack that because there may be an opportunity to use AI there. But someone needs to play that negotiation game. It's not a game, but helping to surface the unarticulated needs, surface the problem, then talk about different solutions and all of that. I think that's a role that just continues. And because the question you get is, OK, I want to have the most advanced options to solve my problem. And right. I give you one example with Repsol, because I think that another point that is important to have in mind is that it's not just for, let's say, AI native companies. Even traditional companies can make it if they have the right leaders. The leaders that embrace what you just said, which is, I want to have the most advanced way of solving problems. And Repsol is uh, the, uh, the Spanish oil and gas incumbents. Therefore, it's a traditional company mm -hmm. in a traditional industry, in a traditional country. I have a Spanish grandfather, so I can say it. <laughs> and so what you have here is with this element is that they've been launching more than 200 programs, AI and digital related. And in three years, they were able to optimize, to improve by two, the production time. And therefore, because they were using hundreds of millions of sensors and data for predictive maintenance, say, oh, no, it's becoming too hot, so you should move that way and so on. So down to having uh, hundreds of thousands of personalized offers in their gas station with a significant impact because they got more than, it was the equivalent of adding 5% of additional gas stations, so which is huge for them as they are constraints, as they are the incumbents. So I think that the chief digital officer, Valero, was telling us, okay, but now AI is part of the stuff. And AI is a cornerstone of our transformation programs. And this is something that we found in, in the last report, that when you look at companies that say, okay, how bored should I be? The fact that if you are bored, trying to have at the same time a large number of initiatives embarking it, it's actually very positive. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying, okay, I should do just one pilot or I should do one use case and two, and it's maybe a way to start. But once you have people, at least at the executive committee level, who are convinced that they need to go with it, go for it. Yeah. And this is the best way for you to get and to leverage AI and to be not only with financial impact, but with the culture change that we can see and that we detail in our report with MIT SMR this year. Yeah. Yeah. Francois, this has been a great conversation. And I, I do want to ask you where people can get in touch with you. But as kind of a last question, is there a question I didn't ask that I should have or a final thought that you would like to share with our audience about being successful here with AI? I believe that one of the key issues for AI is the word intelligence, because it is something that is scaring people. They have the feeling that they would get replaced. I think that AI is a great opportunity to get augmented and that as leaders, we need to think about the system human plus AI. 
Yeah. I would say that for me, if we're able to think in terms of productivity, in terms of all of that and leveraging this great system, then let's say progress will improve. Amen. I'm fully with you there. The <laughs> human in the loops matter, folks. For now, at least we're still here. It's not all machines running machines. So it, no, you have to figure out any, the human machine interaction. Yeah, exactly. It will not. So it's not going away. And so when you're ready, it's time to face that. We need to design for the human in the loop and we need to think about the last mile and we need to think about change and adoption and all these human factors that go into the solution as well as the technologies. So amen to that. Francois, great talking to you. Where can people be in touch? What's the best way? Is it LinkedIn or t- tell me how to get in touch with you? LinkedIn is perfect. LinkedIn is perfect. Okay, we'll drop that in the show notes. Thank you again for coming on and doing this work and publishing it so we, we can all Thank you for your out. invitation. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. So thank you again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.